Good morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. It's good to see you all. Good to have those who are visiting with us as well. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've been working our way slowly through three books of the Bible at a time, which is an unusual thing to do, but hopefully a profitable thing. We've been going through Acts, 1 Corinthians, and Revelation, and now we're going to be in the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. It's interesting to me when I think about where we are as a country and our culture and all that we're dealing with, it's really a challenging time, especially when we seek as Christians to be faithful to God and to his word. Um, It's very important that we really fight to have a right perspective on the Bible and to realize that whatever God commands in his word, he commands from love and from his goodness for love and for our good, our joy, human flourishing, however you want to describe that. And so what God says in his word is a reflection of his goodness and it's for our good. And yet it's not typically seen that way in our culture. There are two things that stand out to me as I think about where we are uh, as a country and as a culture. Um, Two things that seem to guide people these days and how they look at things. One is the idea of evolution. The other is the idea of revolution. Evolution says the past is inferior to the future. And progress is a matter of leaving the past behind and evolving into something new. Which, so that means evolution requires revolution. Revolution is change, radical change. And so we're living in a time where people believe that we need to evolve and we need to, in a sense, uh, create revolution. We need to change in radical ways. If we don't evolve and we don't change in radical ways, then we're, we're sort of prisoners of the past and we're just hanging on to things that will never allow us to be everything that we're supposed to be as humans. And the Bible says um, change is needed, but it's not that kind of change. It's the change of regeneration. It's the change of sanctification. It's the change of people seeing the glory of God and being transformed by the glory of God. And so as Christians, we do believe in change, but we believe that change actually comes from holding on to what is fixed, which is the word of God, which we talked about uh, last week. And so what I'd like to do is have us look at the first part of Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We usually take a chapter at a time, but the subjects that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 are so important and so complex that I wanted to uh, just take them individually. So we'll look at verses 1 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 11 this morning and think through it together. And so please read with me, if you will, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. And hold firmly to the traditions, just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same, as the woman whose head is shaved. 
For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray for your help to understand your word to rightly see what you're saying and how it applies to us today. And we just ask that we would be faithful to what your word says and that we would be those who hear the word of God and live it out by your grace through faith. And we thank you for this time. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is uh, dealing with a church that has a lot of issues. And at the beginning of the book, he is dealing with reports that he's heard from people from Corinth that are telling him the kinds of things they're dealing with, divisions, immorality, uh, lawsuits, and things like that. And then he begins taking up questions that they actually ask him about with regard to eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and things like that. And now he appears to still be addressing, one way or the other, questions that they have about uh, worship, and those kinds of things that are going on in their church. And so we want to look today at the issue that is brought up about head coverings. Now, in our day and time, there are all kinds of issues with regard to men and women and how we're to look at men and women, uh, whether or not there are only men and women, um, or if there are other kinds of people out there besides those two, how, how men and women are, are to relate to each other. Uh, for a long time, there's been the issue of feminism. Uh, feminism is uh, the idea that men and women should be equal in every way, every way possible. And there's been this movement for a long time that whether inside or outside the church, that should be the way it is. And there are those Christians, those who claim the name of Christ, who would say, because Paul says in Christ there's neither uh, slave nor free, male nor female, Everyone ought to be the same in every way. And so we've got these issues inside and outside the church with regard to feminism, egalitarianism, which is the idea that everyone ought to be equal, that there shouldn't be any um, real distinctions between uh, people or between men and women. Obviously, uh, there are those in the church who would argue from a Christian perspective along the lines of what is called either complementarianism or patriarchy. 
Uh, the word patriarchy typically is a negative thing for a number of people. Uh, the word means father rule or male rule. Uh, complementarianism has to do with the issue of men and women being uh, complements to each other, having complementary roles uh, according to their gender and things like that. Well, we could spend all morning just talking about uh, the nature of the things in our society that people are questioning and are arguing about along those lines. But what I'd like to do is just acknowledge that and acknowledge the fact that not only um, does the air we breathe make a passage like this difficult, the passage itself is difficult because um, you have to understand exactly what Paul is dealing with as he wrote to the Corinthians back then and what the different terms he uses mean in their context. And so we're going to try and do that as best we can. Obviously, uh, there are those who are going to disagree with what I say, and we just have to pray that God would help us personally to come to right conclusions about what his word is telling us. And the position to take is always, God, I want to understand and obey your word. Help me to understand and obey your word. And if two people are trying to do that, even if they come to different understandings, that is the right way to try to even deal with differences between believers. They're both committed to seeking to truly understand and apply God's word faithfully. So let's um, let's see what Paul is talking about here. If you look, first of all, at uh, verse 13, verse 13 seems to be the crux of the matter, the issue that Paul is dealing with here. Uh, possibly a, the question that was asked by the Corinthians uh, that Paul uh, is dealing with. In verse 13, he says, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Um, first question is, what is a head covering? Um, for some people, it's kind of a, just a little piece of cloth that some women wear on their heads. Um, and that day and time... Um, a lot of people think it was probably like a shawl that was put over the head that could also be taken off easily in different contexts, but could be put on and taken off. Others think it may have been actually a veil that covered the face. I lean toward the idea that it was some kind of shawl that was put over the head by women in that day and time. And there's actually a head covering movement in our day and time where people want to get back to what they believe is the proper understanding of 1 Corinthians 11. They believe that God requires women to wear head coverings. And interestingly enough, one of my heroes in the faith in the modern era uh, is R.C. Sproul, who's in heaven now. And R.C. Sproul actually argued, he said, we are persuaded that the biblical mandate of head covering is still in effect. He said, I think that the symbol should remain intact as a sign of our obedience to God. So you've got people even like R.C. Sproul who would say, yes, I believe this is something that God intends for women in our day and time to uh, wear as an act of obedience to God. And obviously, uh, with regard to the question of verse 13 that Paul either repeats or proposes, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He answers the question in the passage with no. It is not proper for a woman to pray 
to God with her head uncovered. Now, when you get into the passage, you begin really asking yourself, what is the context and who is Paul talking to? There are questions about, is this just in a worship service? Does this have to do with issues in the society in general as well? Um, is this talking about women or is this talking about wives? Is this talking about men or is this talking about husbands? Because the word there for men could also be translated husband. And in the ESV, it is in several places. The word for uh, woman there can be translated as wife. And in certain places, the ESV translates it wife. And so you've got that issue. Some would say that there, there's an issue between whether the, the issue is the head covering or hair. Because Paul says toward the end of the passage, hair has been given to the woman as a covering. Then you've got the issue of creation, because Paul refers to creation. But he also references things like women shaving their head, which was an issue in their culture, which said certain things. Then you've got the word head itself, which sometimes is a clear reference to the physical head. But in other cases, it seems to be used metaphorically or symbolically. So what does it symbolize? Does it symbolize source, like the head of a river? Or does it symbolize authority, like the head of an organization? And so you've got all these different nuances, and that's why there is a lot of controversy on exactly what Paul is, is saying here. And so... We just have to begin by saying, yes, it is a difficult passage. It's a challenging passage. And I'm going to do my best to let you know what I think Paul was talking about here and how it applies to us today. I would begin by saying that I think Paul's uh, argument is very complex. Uh, Some people want to say women ought to wear head coverings today because Paul refers to creation. And others would say uh, women shouldn't wear head coverings today because Paul refers to cultural issues of their day. And I would say he does both. He refers to both culture and creation, but he refers to a number of different things. And it's a very complex argument that is going on here. And if you notice in verse 13, what does he tell them to do? He says, judge for yourselves. So he's giving them this complex argument in regard to the question and then saying, okay, now you come to your own conclusion in light of all the various things I've just mentioned. Think about all the different ways I've looked at this issue and then you tell me what you think is the right thing to do, which I think the implication is I think you will come to the conclusion I've come to if you take all these things into consideration and you'll come to the conclusion in the right way. And you won't take it further than it should be taken. Anyway, we'll try to talk a little bit about that um, this morning and see how um, we can be helped by this. And and my encouragement is, you might say, I'm not really that concerned about head coverings. That may be true, but I know you're concerned about making decisions. And the way Paul helps us think through this issue is a way kind of a model for how we should think through our decisions. And so whatever your decision is or whatever issue you're dealing with, there's a way in which he approaches this that has application beyond just whether or not you should wear a head covering. And so hopefully it'll be encouraging to all of us 
in that regard. And so the first thing he does when he says, judge for yourselves or encourages them to judge for themselves. In verse two, I think he starts by basically highlighting the fact that they need to think about what they already know. They need to think about what they've already been taught in answering the question, is it okay for our women to not wear head coverings anymore? So he says in verse two, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The traditions refer to uh, the systematic teaching that the apostles have done in the churches that Paul did with them. He's talking about um, not man-made tradition, but he's talking about apostolic tradition. He's talking about the truth that has been taught by the apostles and the practices that have been encouraged by the apostles as well. And so what he's saying is when he says, judge for yourselves, he's basically saying to ask yourself this question, Corinthians, is the abandonment of the head covering in worship by our women consistent with the teaching that we have received? So I think he's beginning by saying, let's start with what you know that you've been taught. And do you think the women taking off the head coverings is consistent with the truth and the practice that you've been taught thus far. I think the Lord Jesus did the same kind of thing when he was dealing with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 when he accused them of trading in God's commands for man-made tradition, which is a different kind of tradition than what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus told the Pharisees, you set aside God's commandment to honor your father and your mother, and you say something like, um, all that I have has been given to God, it's, it's Corbin. And Jesus says, you set aside the commandment of God to keep your basically human tradition. What is he saying there? He's saying your practice is not consistent with what you've been taught. You've been taught to honor your father and mother, but your practice is to say, oh, can't give you anything, mom and dad. I've committed everything to God. And he's saying your practice does not fit what you've been taught. So I think that's where Paul starts here by implication when he starts off by commending them for holding to the traditions to some degree or another. He's actually wanting them to continue that. Make sure that your decision in this regard is not inconsistent with what you've already been taught. What you already know uh, is the truth of God and the implications of that. The second thing he does is in verses 3 and 4, he talks about the divine order. And so he says in verse 3, but I want you to understand. And so he starts out by saying, I want you to, I want you to see something if you don't yet see it. Meaning, this is the way of reality. This is what, it, what reality truly is. When he says, I want you to understand, he's, he's highlighting the fact that there is an order of things. And it may not be the way your culture thinks everything is ordered or should be ordered. And so he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, like I mentioned, sometimes head seems to be referring to the physical head, 
But it's obvious that at times when he talks about the man being the head of the woman, he's not talking about a physical head. He's talking uh, symbolically or, or metaphysically, so to speak. He's talking about a reference to authority. Some people take it as source or preeminence, but I think the best way to understand it is in terms of authority because there are other places in Scripture where Paul makes that clear. In Ephesians 5, for instance, uh, Christ is the head of the church. He's not simply the source of the church. He is the authority over the church. It's a position of rule and authority, and Paul uh, is speaking the same way here. Now, when it talks about a man disgracing his head or or a woman disgracing her head, um, that is probably also a reference to not her, his physical head or her physical head, but the person who is their head. So for a man to wear something on his head, Paul says, is a disgrace to Christ. For a woman not to wear something on her head is a disgrace to her husband or to uh, her father in that context or whatever it might be. And so you've got this issue of what does... Um, what does the, the head covering represent and how does it fit in with reflecting the order of things, the divine order of things, not the order that the culture may say should be the way we follow uh, certain things, but what, the way God looks at it. So what he's doing here, he's basically saying, judge for yourselves and ask this question, Corinthians, is the abandonment of the head covering in worship by our women consistent with the divine structure of headship and authority and submission revealed to us? The interesting thing is Paul says that not only is Christ the head of man and man is the head of the woman, but God is the head of Christ. And that's within the divine Godhead. That's the Trinity. And so obviously that doesn't imply inequality and that certainly doesn't apply abuse. And so inherent in that ordering and the picturing of that ordering is um, that which speaks against the idea that if someone is under someone else in some sense, they must not be equal to them in value, worth, and those kinds of things. Or um, if someone is under someone else in terms of their authority, that must mean they are being abused. And so Paul immediately begins to say, we know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally God. And yet there's a sense in which we can truly say, God the Father is the head of Christ. Without thinking there's any kind of inequality there, or thinking there's any kind of abuse there, lack of love and appropriate honor and all those things. And so he begins by saying you need to understand that there is a fabric of order in the Godhead and in creation that actually supports the idea of there being uh, authority structures that are actually good, uh, glorifying to God, and truly loving, and and then the foundation for true joy and human flourishing, and not uh, against that. It's interesting, there's different things in the Bible that kind of speak to this in various ways. Um, There's a story in the Old Testament that I've always thought uh, was very interesting, where Deborah is a judge in Israel, 
Uh, typically, judges were men, but in Judges 4, we see Deborah is the judge of Israel at that time in Israel. And obviously, Judges is about the cycle of Israel, uh, you know, doing okay for a while, falling into sin. God brings judgment. Uh, God raises up a deliverer, and they're brought back. In this case, uh, Deborah is one of those judges, and God tells Deborah to tell Barak to attack Sisera, um, who was the leader of uh, the forces of the country that's oppressing Israel at the time. And Barak says, I'm not going to do it unless you go with me. And she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, if you just think about that, the implication is that uh, Barak, you're supposed to go and do this, but you're unwilling, you're hesitant, and you'll only go under certain conditions. And, the God, and God says, the honor that would have been yours is going to be given to a woman. That implies something about um, the, the, the di- dynamic between ma- men and women in terms of who's supposed to take the lead uh, in certain situations, certainly in, in battle and things like that. Um, there's even another scripture in Isaiah 3 where it says, Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Now, there are a lot of people that really would be offended by that statement, but it's in the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves, so what is God saying when he says things like that? Is he demeaning women? I mean, is Isaiah demeaning women? No. But something really true and important is being said about how God has ordered things for human flourishing, for the joy of all people, both men and women. And the reality is, in our day and time, that is being challenged more than it's ever been challenged in my lifetime. And so that's why it's so important for us to really think hard about what Paul says here in passages like this, as well as what the the rest of the Bible says about the the proper relationship between men and women, um, because it is truly important in all kinds of ways. So the argument from tradition or systematic teaching of the apostles, the argument from divine headship, both within the Trinity and in uh, creation in terms of how he's ordered, ordered it, says something to the question that they're dealing with. And then next, I think he brings up the issue of culture in verses 5 and 6, where it says, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, you notice praying or prophesying would be within the worship service. So he's uh, highlighting what's going on in the immediate context of the worship service. doesn't mean it doesn't have any application outside that, but that is the question that's being addressed. Now, when it talks about a woman having her hair cut off or her head shaved, you have to realize he's, he's highlighting the fact that in that day and time, If a woman had her hair cut off or her head completely shaven, it identified her as something. And and it was a negative thing. Um, But it could be several things. It could identify her as a feminist, as someone who wanted to 
um, erased the distinctions between men and women and wanted to make men and women completely equal in every way. Or it could identify her as a prostitute. Or it could identify her as an adulteress. So it, it was identifying her in a certain way in that culture. And so Paul is saying, you need to think about um, all kinds of things with regard to this question. Think about what you've been taught. Think about the order that God has established. And think about what it would say in your culture if you did that. Um, again, he's encouraging them to ask the question, is the abandonment of the head covering and worship by our women consistent with removing unnecessary hindrances to the gospel in light of cultural expectations. Now, there are those who would say that the head covering simply identified married women. As I said, I think it's broader than that. A lot of people would agree. They would say it was a sign of submission. It was a sign of sexual purity, as I've just described. And so it had all kinds of implications Uh, Charles Hodge said the principle insisted on in this paragraph is that women should conform in matters of dress to all those practices that the public sentiment of the community in which they live demands. The veil in all eastern countries was, and to a great extent still is, a symbol of modesty and subjection. And so the interesting thing is, Paul is saying, let's look at this issue from all kinds of angles. And one angle is the angle of, in your own community, what would it say to people if you did this? Would it be something that facilitated the truth of the gospel or was a hindrance to the truth of the gospel? Um, Earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, you may remember, He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. So he talks about uh, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as under the law. To those without law, I became without law, but not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He says to the weak, I've become weak. And he says, I've done all that. I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some meaning I'm not going to provide unnecessary roadblocks to the gospel. I'm not going to provide unnecessary hindrances to people hearing what I have to say by simply wanting to be different from people around me, just exercising my independence because I can, as if there might not be any implications in terms of whether or not I can be a a good and helpful witness for Christ in that way, or whether or not I can truly love people by just disregarding all community standards or cultural norms. That is a real practical question for us as Christians. It doesn't mean that we simply do whatever culture tells us to do. If it's inherently wrong, it's wrong. But if it's not inherently wrong, we have to ask ourselves, can I uh, not uh, follow this a cultural norm and still not provide a hindrance to people to hear the gospel and to be uh, a, a loving uh, witness of Christ to them. And so he encourages them to consider the issue of culture and the community in which they live. Then he moves to the issue of creation, which a lot of people do focus on. He says in verses 7 through 10, 
For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, obviously, uh, the Bible tells us that both men and women were created for the glory of God. And so the question is, what is Paul really saying here when he says the man um, was made in the image of God and for the glory of God? We know that both men and women were made in the image of God and for the glory of God. It must be in terms of what he's talking about here, in terms of the order that God has established in the world so that um, man was created first uh, to rule creation according to God's will. And then woman was made out of man to be man's helper in ruling creation according to God's design. So both were intended to be partners in ruling creation. And yet there is a priority given to the man. And um, Paul kind of brings that out if you read 1 Timothy um, 2 when he's talking about male leadership in the church and only men elders in the church. He argues based on creation by saying, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So that the principle is uh, there, there is something about how God created things that is meant to tell us about how things are to operate between men and women in daily life in various areas. And so he's encouraging the Corinthians to ask the question, is the abandonment of the head covering in worship by our women consistent with, with what God has done and revealed through the creation of man and the creation of woman, the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve? And so when R.C. Sproul says, you know, based on uh, what Paul says about the importance of acknowledging the creation order, I would say, yes, you're right. That is a consideration. It's just not the only consideration. Um, and so, but it is an important consideration in terms of understanding that there is something about how God created things that is, into, is to influence how we order things here and now. Well, he moves on from there, and I'm just having to touch on these briefly because our time is going to be gone here in a few minutes. But he goes on to talk about the divine partnership. And this is where I believe he continues to try to help us uh, get away from the idea that God ordering things means people are unequal and there is a place for abuse. And so he goes on and he says in verses 11 and 12, However, in the Lord, neither is woman an independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And so he says, yes, it is true that when God created Eve, he created her out of Adam. But from that point on, every man that came into being came into being by being born through a woman. And so it's a picture of a mutual dependence on men and women, or between men and women, that uh, we're not independent of each other. The idea that um, 
there might be a place that one has that the other doesn't have doesn't mean that there isn't an important partnership that takes place. I mean, obviously, in terms of my body, if all I was was a head, I would be terribly limited. It takes the whole body in order for us to be all that God created us to be. And it takes a proper ordering between men and women for humanity to be all that God created us to be and for the body of Christ to be all that God created us to be. And so the implication is that because we are dependent, there isn't an inequality in terms of value, importance, significance, or anything like that, nor does it support the idea that um, there's inherent, inherent abuse in the way God has ordered things because it would be foolish of me if my head, uh, or in my head I said, I'm going to destroy the rest of my body. I'm going to abuse the rest of my body. There's something wrong in our thinking if we hurt ourselves. And that's why Paul could say in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives like you love yourself. Because naturally we love ourselves. Naturally we take care of ourselves. And so uh, Paul is arguing that there's a partnership here uh, that we have to recognize. And he's encouraging them to ask the question, is the abandonment of the head covering and worship by our women consistent with the reality of mutual dependence upon men and women by God's design? In other words, if we reject that partnership and we reject the way that men and women are to complement each other, Aren't we trying to make everybody the same? And won't that be actually worse? If everybody is ahead, nobody is the arm or leg or anything else. And so we just all kind of sit on a table as heads. It, it actually undermines human flourishing, undermines uh, our joy, our peace, and all that God designed to take place through humanity and obviously through the body of Christ. And the things that are meant to um, guide us in all of this is what Jesus said. He said that the two greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor are, uh, includes all those close to you. And so if you're uh, in a headship position, you're to love those that you are over just like you love yourself. And if you are in a, a position where you're under someone else, you're to love that person just like you would want to be loved if you were in that position. It goes both ways. It's a matter of loving as we should love. And so that's why it says in 1 Peter 3, husbands, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 5, as I mentioned earlier, the husband should love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There's a mutual love uh, that acknowledges God's order in it all. Well, he goes on from there, and he talks about um, nature's distinction, so to speak, in verses 14 and 15. He says, does, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, if we think about that a minute, 
Uh, didn't people in the Old Testament have long hair? Like who? Samson comes ready to mind. Samson had long hair, and cutting his hair was a bad thing. Uh, Nazarites typically let their hair grow. And so when you think about all of those things, and you try to understand what Paul is saying there, um, he's not saying that the issue is the length of the hair per se. Obviously, the question is the length of the hair in light of culture, in light of what the length of the hair would say, again, in the culture in which you live. Um, Let me say that in a different way. We should maintain the distinctions between men and women. So in your culture, if women dress this way and men dress this way, uh, women's hair looks like this, men's hair looks like this, then we should not try to blur the distinctions between men and women. The reality is the Bible never says how long a man's hair can be. Uh, we would disagree on what long is, you know. And so the issue isn't exactly the issue of how long someone's hair is. The issue is, are we blurring the distinctions between men and women? Because when we're thinking rightly by nature in our own hearts, we know that men should look like men and women should look like women. The only times we don't think that is when we begin to breathe the air of our culture and we begin to embrace ideas that are totally foreign to uh, what we naturally know to be the case and foreign to the Bible. And so he's encouraging them to ask the question, is the abandonment of the head covering and worship by our women consistent with the teaching of nature itself as is designed by God? That's why in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it says a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Uh, someone has commented on what was going on in the first century and have, has said, we know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. Women would often take off their veils or other head coverings and cut their hair in order to look like men. Much as in our own day, some women were demanding to be treated exactly like men, and they attacked marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions of their rights. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands in homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity. So nothing's changed. You know, things are... The reality is the issues we face today have been faced by the church through history in principle from the very beginning of time in certain ways. It just manifests itself differently. And so what we have to do is realize that God does want us to maintain proper distinctions between men and women. And a lot of times that is helpfully um, defined for us by common grace, by what we see around us. In our day and time, those lines are being very much blurred. Well, let me get to the last 
um, last thing he does, the last way he looks at this issue, and it's with regard to the issue of common practice. He says in verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So the last thing he says is, if you give up the head covering, you're going to be doing something that nobody else is doing. Now, if he had just, if that was the only thing he said, they could probably say, so? No? Why do we have to be like everybody else? Uh, obviously, Paul isn't saying just be like everybody else. Just be like the world, or even just be like every other church. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is, we need the humility and wisdom to ask, is my life and is my church in practice consistent with other godly people and churches in my own day and even in history? It's a, it's a humble thing to ask myself, the way we're doing things, is it totally different than what the church has done historically? Is it totally different than what truly faithful congregations around the world are still doing today? It's not inappropriate to ask that question. It doesn't mean it's the only consideration, but again, it's part of the way we think through issues. You ask all kinds of questions to hit it from every angle to really uh, make sure you're thinking it through because there is orthodoxy, right theology. There's orthopraxy, right practice. And he's encouraging them to ask the question, is the abandonment of the head covering and worship by our women consistent with the practice of all the other Christian churches under the care of the apostles? And ultimately, he's bringing them back to verse 1 where Paul says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. There's a sense in which he's saying uh, Christ, who is the head of the church, is leading his body in this way. Is what you're wanting to do consistent with how Christ is leading his body or has led his body historically? And if not, then go back to Scripture and see if there's something about what's been happening that's inconsistent with Scripture or is there something about what you want to do that's inconsistent with Scripture? So all of that is to say that I think Paul's main point in this is not that next Sunday all our women need to have head coverings on when they come to church. I think the point that he's making is uh, what's on your head uh, can reveal what's in your heart. Because remember, he's talking about men don't wear anything on your head in worship. Women wear something on your head in worship in your context, in your day and time, in light of what it will say if you as a man wear a head covering or what it will say if you as a woman do not wear a head covering in your day and time, all things considered. Because what you want to communicate is the truth of God's order in every culture, whatever that culture may be. You want to communicate God's order. And so... If you remember, Radagast the Brown is a wizard in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and he has a hat on. And under his hat is what? Anybody know? Bird's nest. And so what does he have on his head? He has a bird's nest on his head. Why? Because he loves nature. 
So what Paul is saying here is, what you have on your head says something. It's like Radagast, what he had on his head said he was a lover of nature and animals and birds and all those things. Paul says the issue here isn't head coverings per se. The issue is what's in your heart. What is in your heart by what you're doing or not doing? What does that say about whether or not you've embraced God's order and the truth of God? Is it reflected in your practice one way or another? And so he's basically encouraging them to ask the question, do we have a heart to honor God's order for men and women in this world? Is that my heart to do that? Is it my heart to understand what that looks like in my own culture to order, uh, excuse me, to honor God's order? Ultimately, he's saying it's a wisdom issue. It's not an issue of right and wrong. Wearing a head covering isn't an issue of right and wrong. So I would disagree with R.C. Sproul on that regard and others who would say you have to wear a head covering. The issue is a wisdom issue. Is it wise to wear a head covering in light of all those considerations? That's why sometimes decisions can be very complex because there may be a lot of things I have to consider where God hasn't said thou shalt wear a head covering or thou shalt not wear a head covering. But he says, I want you to look at that issue, that practical issue, in light of all these things and come to a conclusion. Judge for yourself. Come to a conclusion where you're convinced in your own heart. And if, as some have said, if you're convinced in your own heart that your wife or you as a woman should wear a head covering, you wear a head covering. That's what you should do. If you're convinced in your own heart, that's what you should do. But he's saying, judge for yourself. It, Is this something you should do in light of all these things? Um, That's why someone has said the apostle is not laying down an absolute law for women to wear veils or coverings in all churches for all time, but it's declaring that the symbols of the divinely established male and female roles are to be genuinely honored in every culture. So let me just conclude by saying, here, God through Paul is not denying the reality that men can and do often abuse women. He's not denying that that is the reality, that in a fallen world, men often do abuse women and take advantage of women um, in light of their power and their authority. Paul is not denying the reality that women are often not treated equally in ways that they should be, whether it be in the workplace or with regard to pay for certain work done and things like that. We're not saying, he's not saying that there can be an abuse of um, those structures uh, in a fallen world. Uh, Paul, what Paul says here is not denying the reality that those in power often abuse that power and mistreat those under authority. So the reality is that, yes, there is abuse and there is inequality where it should not be. But the reality of that does not mean that the order is inherently wrong. There are, there are bad marriages. Does that mean marriage is a bad thing? No. There are um, situations in which um, you're in a job and that job is just a horrible thing and 
Does that mean, and your bo- your boss mistreats you, does that mean uh, having a boss is just an evil thing? No, it does, just the structure doesn't mean, or the failures within the structure doesn't mean that there's something sinful or inherently wrong with the structure. It just highlights the fact that we live in a fallen world and we should not be surprised that sinners act like sinners even within good structures. And we need God's grace to be different as Christians, to be different as Christian men, different as Christian women, different as Christian husbands, different as Christian wives. And so what Paul does here, he affirms that abuse of various kinds and unequal treatment of various kinds are the result of sin in the fall. He affirms that abuse and inequality should be appropriately addressed. He affirms, I think, by implication that divine structures of authority and divine distinctions between men and women should be maintained for the glory of God and for the good of men and women. And the reality is that we are challenged to hold on to the truth of God in a world that challenges God's word. And the question is, will I trust God and obey God? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And the question is, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that trusting God's order and trusting what God has said and obeying God in light of my trusting him is really the path of happiness for me and for others? Or do I doubt whether or not God commanded what he commanded out of love, out of his own goodness, whether or not it's really for love, whether it's really loving, whether it's really for joy and happiness and human flourishing. And so we live in a world that says, God, you're not right. If you read the book of Malachi, uh, God highlights the fact that the people then were saying, God, your way is not right. Are we like? The people in that day who look at what God says and say, God, you're not right in this. Your way is wrong. It's not It's not for my joy and my good. It's not for the joy and good of society or the church or anything else. The fight is to trust the goodness and the love of God and to pray for wisdom to know how to flesh it out in things that are really difficult. And I pray that God would give us that grace. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is challenging, especially things like this, matters like this in a day like ours when we're challenged left and right with what we are to think about men and women, uh, what we're to think about um, how men and women are to relate in the church, outside the church, in society. And we just pray for grace to think hard about what your word says, even though sometimes it's hard to really understand exactly what all you're saying and and how we're to apply it. But I pray that the difficulty would not keep us from working hard to trust you and to love you and to be faithful. Help us not to be lazy. Uh, Help us not to be lazy in our thinking, lazy in our study of your word, lazy in our application. Help us to fight. Help us to fight the good fight of faith and to not be a hindrance to the world around us and not to misrepresent your goodness and your glory in our lives. So please help us. We confess we need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.